Hi everyone, welcome to Creating Life. I'm Nikhil Venkatesa. And I'm Sindhuri Nandakumar. So Sindhu, how was your week? It was pretty good, Nikhil. I um, binge watched a few movies this week and most of them were like these incredible women-centric stories. Like, um, you're laughing already. On the basis of sex about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and a private war about... Marie Colvin, I think that's her name, the war correspondent. I'm not laughing because they're women-centric. I'm just, you're so excited <laughs> about these movies. And, you know, between the two, which one would you recommend? I would say on the basis of sex, pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. Even though the other one is about a journalist, uh-huh. which I'm sure you identify with yeah. more. I mean, she's a war correspondent, but I feel like the newsroom is a war room anyway, and I identify with it, but... Yeah, I don't know. Both were pretty cool. How was your week? Are you, wait, are you excited about uh, election results being announced this week? Definitely, but only because it feels like there's going to be an end, at least an artificial end to this batshit crazy election. This is the first time I've followed an election this closely and it's, oh my God, it's so overwhelming. You're you're so exhausted, like you've been on the campaign ground <laughs> trail. Just reading the news makes you feel like that. Yeah, no, seriously, like even by Indian standards, right? I think the news cycle this election season has just been completely over the top and overwhelming. I mean, like where do we start? Who's coming in now from Bhopal and Sadhvi Pragya Thakur, an accused in the Malegaon blast case, has joined the BJP as she is likely to contest against the Congress's Digvijay Singh. I guess most egregious example of it, the BJP candidate in Bhopal, Sadhvi Pragya Thakur, who's been accused of terrorism. She loves Nathuram Godse, who was the man who killed Mahatma Gandhi, and she claims to have participated in the Babri Masjid bombing of 1992. Yeah. And then there was just that bizarrely hilarious moment where Prime Minister Narendra Modi spoke about his love of mangoes with um, Akshay Kumar. And then after that, he just remained mum at his first press conference, like the first one that happened since he became Prime Minister. Congress President Rahul Gandhi has taken a tongue-in-cheek jibe at PM Narendra Modi saying that Modi lie is a new word that has become popular worldwide. And both parties have slung mud at each other in different ways. Modi claimed that Rahul Gandhi isn't actually an Indian citizen. Gandhi called Modi a thief. Gandhi concocted a new verb for the Oxford Dictionary called Modi Lai, which turned out to be fake. And then Modi targeted Rahul Gandhi's father, Rajiv Gandhi, by calling him Karap number one. I mean, there's been so much he said, he said in this election. (laughs) I mean, okay, and then we also have the topics that we want to kind of probe a little deeper, like the whole social media campaigning, right? The fervor, the the frenzy. The The ultra-nationalism and patriotism. Yeah, I mean, it it's like all these chowkidars and urban naxals who've taken over our news feeds and timelines. Like. Yeah, it just f- feels like every ardent BJP fan turned into a chowkidar overnight. After the Chaiwala vote appeal in 2014, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has donned a new avatar for 2019, urging his supporters to take the Maybe Chowkidar pledge. In March this year, Prime Minister Modi launched his Maybe Chowkidar campaign. And you saw several members of the BJP party and hardcore supporters following suit by calling themselves quote-unquote chowkidars as well. Well, one question I have, Sindhu, is why 
then modi call himself a chaiwala instead of a chaukidar <laughs> because in 2014 a lot of his campaign was about his humble beginnings being the son of a chaiwala so why didn't he just use that and say maybe chaiwala or maybe chaiwala hu why is it chaukidar i think uh, if there's one thing we've learned with the propaganda of the ruling party is that it has a lot to deliver so they probably didn't want to use the same rhetoric as last time around <laughs> but i think also a strategic decision based on the fact that he's already been in office for one term and he's altering his image now as not just a man of the masses but also a, a guardian a protector and that's where we see all this nationalist sentiment coming in with foreign policy and security mm-hmm. especially after what happened with the pulwama attack yeah and i think the word um chaukidar in hindi means watchkeeper gatekeeper and he's using him using that word to kind of relate to uh, traditionally low income communities while also saying you know i will protect this country which you know it's it's interesting because i didn't really know anything about that word until this whole twitter campaign started mm-hmm. and i didn't pause to think about what that word originally meant and in what ways it might be appropriated by this movement and um recently i i read this um piece written by a germany based freelance writer pratap nair for mm-hmm. huffington post he is the son of a real chaukidar or a former chaukidar a railway watchman from the state of kerala and he talks about you know how he was just really shocked when he saw this emerge because he's lived through the reality of having a father work in that profession the shame and guilt he carried about his low income status and he has this really interesting line where he says um as the election circus reaches a crescendo and the hashtags and prefixes started appearing more regularly on my timeline i realized the misappropriation of the word chaukidar began to grate on me and isn't it interesting that we i never paused to think of the word's real meaning hmm and we actually spoke with pratap about why he chose to write such a deep deep and personal essay on this topic and why he took offense when on his timeline he started seeing more and more people use this label for themselves so actually it was immediately clear to me the moment that thought creep crept into my mind that uh, achaki that is a watchman and uh, so it's a it's a misappropriation because i know that at a personal level what uh, i mean i grew up my my father i knew what work he was doing and how the difficulties that he went through. and he had three children he had to raise them and he so so i understand uh, what chakida meant and i lived uh, the life of a chakida son and then uh, i got to present everybody every bjp supporter is a chakida now and what does it mean to them do they even know one chakida and their and have they known a chakida in their life that's why it is misappropriation because you don't know what it is to, what it is to be a chakida and you don't know what it is it is to know someone who is a chakida so you have you have no personal agency in it it was clear to me it is struck uh, to me at a personal at a very personal level uh, you know when as soon as the association was made the chakidar support man we also spoke with pratap about what he wants readers to take away from his essay i mean i wasn't expecting any reaction but i just want to put this idea out there that this is like i said this is the exploitation of the underdog the misappropriation of the of the t- term itself and i this has not been written uh, about before so i wanted to put that thought out there You know Nikhil there's an interesting uh, segment in the essay where Pratap also writes that the exploitation of the underdog is a trope that's really commonly used in politics like since 
basically mankind started practicing politics but i was curious to know about how he would place the bjp's current campaigning and strategy within that broader context and this is what he had to say all politicians are equal opportunity exploiters uh, when i when i was growing up in the 1980s and 90s uh, i used to hate this phrase that was quite often used uh, in media uh, it's called um, minority appeasement this one this one was basically congress was doing uh, i mean congress was doing a lot of political measures when when they were in power uh, you know to appease the minority they were all populist measures for example india was the first country to ban the satanic verses politicians exploit equally but now uh, in, in today's time today's information age what bjp is doing is a lot more harmful than you know what any government was doing before because any reaction to 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 all these campaigns is instant widespread because all of us have uh, all of us are on social media all of us are so well connected sindhu when i studied civics in school the election commission of india was regarded as you know one of india's premier and finest institutions for the way they conducted essentially the largest elections around the world mm. because of how many people live in india and they do it without any hiccups or any foul play and they've been doing it for so long but one of the biggest trends i've noticed in this election is how the current election commission the ec has been failing in its responsibilities and today the question we are asking is has the election commission done enough to enforce the model code of conduct both in letter and in spirit one of the most disturbing aspects of this election has been the growing perception of an election commission that is powerless to act especially against the prime minister and amit shah 66 former bureaucrats have written an open letter to the president of india and to the election commission as well expressing their anguish over the conduct of the election watchdog you know we've seen a number of issues in the recent past where the ec has been criticized for its lack of considerable action like its uh, regulatory role in the online and social media space which is so fast evolving and its responsibility towards monitoring these electronic voting machines or evms and the voter verifiable paper audit trails and how well it has managed to regulate hate speech and propaganda whether it's in the digital world or in in the real world it's an extremely complex topic to navigate which yeah. is why we decided to get some help So Shovin Sarkar is a senior correspondent at the Quint and he focuses on technology and policy. He's been closely following what the EC has been doing in social media and he's going to break down these issues for us and how they fit into the overall context of the election. So uh, what we have seen with this election commission headed by Chief Election Commissioner Sunil Arora is that every single day it has made some headline or the other for its action or rather inaction in the way that some of the candidates and some of the non-candidates from various parties have been sort of trying to push the envelope to see how far they can go in saying things which are most on most occasions very obviously divisive obviously polarizing for example of sadvi pragya terror accused sadvi pragya singh thakur who's presently standing trial in the maligaon blast case on wednesday joined the bjp Sadhvi Pragya has been fielded by the BJP from the Bhopal parliamentary seat. Now she has made statements which have been inflammatory which have been sort of problematic. Hey, I mean I got your stuff last by not 
taking a firm stand on her statements where she has spoken against say Hemant Karkare the officer who died on 2611 we get her saying that i was stood atop babri masjid and watched it raise being raised to the ground and all of that and also testing the limits of what the model code of conduct can take main zara kehna chahta hu and one of the most obvious examples of this has been how prime minister narendra modi and many other members of the part his party have used photographs of martyrs of the pulwama attack and at the same time asked for votes in the name of captain abhinandan who was caught after the balakot air strike and subsequently released and using them to sort of ask for votes is something that the election commission has made very clear cannot be done and that was also challenged by the opposition parties but the election commission recently in two cases where pm modi was heard invoking pulwama and balakot to ask for votes election commission has found prime minister modi did not violate the model code of conduct he managed to get away with a clean check because the election commission said that he is not directly asking um, the people to cast the vote on his party symbol or is not actively asking for votes the other aspect is the online or the cyber space in which election manipulation has been happening the election commission frankly has been able to keep up with has turned a blind eye to and also it's really sad to see that despite having come up with these grand plans to monitor uh, the online space it has so far done nothing okay so the grand plans that sushovan is talking about have to do with a code of ethics which the ec introduced in march which basically talks about how political parties are allowed to use the internet and social media within the context of the election a bunch of the top major social media platforms facebook google twitter messaging apps like whatsapp then you had tiktok you had sharechat so all of these major online platforms had come together and drafted what we know as this code of ethics and which was sort of drafted with the help of the internet and mobile association of india they presented this code of ethics to the chief election commissioner on march 20 saying that uh, this is a voluntary code of ethics which we will adhere to to ensure that there is no abuse of our particular website or our platform in the upcoming elections and specifically if you go through the code of ethics you will see that they specifically are aiming to deal with violation of the mandatory 48 hour silence period this 48 hour silence period that sushovan is talking about is a mandatory rule of law that restricts any form of campaigning 48 hours before the end of polling in a particular constituency now the election commission realized that this can also be manipulated through online means which which wasn't the case in the previous elections so they said hang on we need to sort of also make sure that people like these parties are not asking for votes or doing any of this funny business on facebook google any of these places so these major platforms along with the election commission came up with the code of ethics and which had all these promises unfortunately what we have seen is in every single phase of the elections to so far and i'm pretty sure it will be for all seven phases the bjp especially has violated this 48 a silence period before and during each of the phases of voting so far what they have done is they have spent they have poured crores literally crores into ads on facebook targeted ads and these ads are basically some promise or the other they have made in the manifesto like we will fight terrorism we will make a strong army and they have been targeting ads throughout the silence period you know each of the five phases of polling and including on the day of polling 
So, I mean, it just goes on to reflect the brazenness with which this has been done online. And he also points out this other major feature of how political parties are behaving online. See, we've all been noticing that on our social media feeds, which is through proxy groups and proxy identities. Proxy groups give political parties the chance to work around the EC's codes of conduct. It mainly happens through content that's advertised online or through veiled influence on voters like giving them freebies in exchange for their vote. Congress party has written to the election commission over pro-BJP Facebook pages that offer freebies for voters. Divya Spandana, the head of Congress social media, has stated that BJP via a Facebook page called My First Vote for Modi is enticing voters to vote for Narendra Modi with free gifts such as badges, bags and t-shirts. On uh, March 24th, Prime Minister Narendra Modi from his official Twitter, Twitter handle had retweeted a tweet by Namo Merchandise and saying that, Hi guys, have you ordered your Namo Merchandise? Have you ordered this attractive merchandise yet? And two days later, the same merchandise that Modi was seen endorsing on Twitter was being offered on this one page called My First Vote for Modi, saying that pledge to vote for Modi and stand a chance to win these attractive merchandise. So, I mean... On many levels, these raises questions. First, why would the Prime Minister of a country sort of go on and uh, promote any merchandise? I mean, even if it is merchandise being sold in his name, but why Why? Why would he do so, especially in election season? And second of all, when a page is offering any kind of freebies in exchange for votes, that amounts to bribery. So in that case, this is this is like, you know, very dubious activities that we have seen in the online space as well. Okay, so clearly technology is a big part of the debate that's surrounding these elections. Like we have social media and also what is perceived as the EC's inability to regulate it. But then, you know, there's another more fundamental issue at hand, which is the voting machines themselves. Indian election authorities have repeatedly claimed that the nation's electronic voting machines are tamper-proof. But in this video, security researchers demonstrate several ways that criminals could tamper with the machines to steal votes and change the outcome of elections. In 2010, literally a decade ago, three security researchers from around the world published a study on how India's EVMs could be easily hacked. In response, the Election Commission denied this and said that they're 100% tamper-proof. And that's the rhetoric that it has been maintaining since then, even in response to new claims which have emerged from researchers or political parties. Are you saying that political parties that raise this issue about EVMs do it when the results don't suit them or they think things are not going their way? Again, I want to clarify that these machines are being standalone machines and not connected. They cannot be tempered. Any machine can malfunction. But what the EC has done in recent past is introduce another device that checks against the EVM. And this is the Voter Verifiable Paper Audit Trail, or the VVPAT. And uh, this particular machine is the VVPAT. Uh, as soon as the candidate uh, button is pressed, whichever uh, the voter's choice is, uh, the VVPAT machine within seven seconds will show a slip over here on this particular screen. And uh, then a paper will be ejected through this area of the box that will determine where uh, the particular vote uh, of the voter has gone to. Now, these papers, when then be sealed by officials and uh, kept in a sealed envelope. VVPAT is meant to ensure the integrity and transparency of the electronic voting machines where we 
press the button to cast a vote. The election commission came up with a VVPAT in 2013 in Nagaland as a test case and then in 2014 Lok Sabha elections it was used in many constituencies across the country. So basically the VVPAT is used to ensure that the EVM is functioning correctly. Okay, that's a lot of abbreviations, <laughs> but you know, whenever there is a mismatch between the tally of the EVM and the VVPAT, the EC has said that it will always go with the VVPAT's reading. First up, breaking news that's coming in. The Andhra Pradesh Chief Minister N. Chandrababu Naidu has now written to the Election Commission demanding verification of 50% of the EVMs which uses VVPAT slips. Recently, 21 opposition parties, which included uh, Chandrababu Naidu, Farooq Abdullah's NCA, Madhmi Party, all of them together had asked the Election Commission to raise the VVPAT count uh, in every constituency to 50%. A Lok Sabha constituency, for example, has about 2,000 polling booths, which means they have 2,000 EVMs and VVPATs in a Lok Sabha constituency. The Supreme Court on April 8th had directed the Election Commission to randomly pick five polling booths in a constituency and tally the VVPAT with the number of votes being displayed on the EVM to ensure that there is sort of a match in the VVPAT count and the EVM to ensure that the votes have been recorded properly. These opposition parties have said that picking five random booths for VVPAT tallying is not sufficient to ensure transparency or it does not you know, give us the correct picture because it is too small a sample size. So we want the VVPAT count to be increased to 50%. So in a big joy to the opposition, the Supreme Court today rejected a plea filed by the United Opposition Parties to increase the verification of EVM and VVPAT. The 21 opposition parties had moved to the apex court demanding that the EVM and VVPAT verification should increase from 5% to 50%. Two issues uh, have come up in this election itself and uh, which have raised uh, grave concerns even with VVPATs. First was uh, in Andhra Pradesh and Telangana, there were reports of malfunctioning of sorts of the VVPAT. The VVPAT is supposed to display the slip behind the glass for seven seconds. But there were complaints and videos that the slips were only being displayed for three seconds and the light was going off and the, that was it. And the second is, PIL was filed again in uh, Hyderabad High Court, which said that there is a mis- there was a mismatch in the number of VVPAT um, paper slips and the number of votes, which is also sort of quite surprising, as because I mean every vote is supposed to generate one paper slip. So if there are if there are more or if there are less, sort of raises questions as well. But by and large, VVPATs have worked fine, but there have been these issues that have come up which sort of tells us that EVFs and VVPATs are not entirely 100% beyond question. Okay, so, so Shivan, how does this election commission match up to previous ones? Like, do you think they're functioning the same or they're particularly worse? Well, uh, that's a good question because uh, we've also been trying to wrap our heads around, you know, the same question and to understand whether this has gone far beyond what we have seen in previous elections, whether this is an anomaly or whether this is something which is sort of reflective of the larger trends in the country where institutions uh, across the spectrum, which are supposed to be independent, have come under question. Now, if we look at the EC in the larger context as an independent institution, 
we have to put this in the context of also what we have seen with the CBI versus CBI saga that went about. And also questions of how uh, the, the judiciary has also functioned where sitting judges of the Supreme Court last year had uh, gone to the media in an unprecedented move and said that uh, the then uh, Chief Justice of India, Deepak Mishra, was not allocating cases in an unbiased and absolutely fair manner. So these independent institutions have come under a cloud for for various reasons. And the Election Commission, again, one of the other pillars that uphold our democracy, has come under that same cloud. And who is to blame for the EC's lack of action or incompetence in this election cycle? Should we blame Sunil Arora, the chief election commissioner of this particular election? It would be unfair to put everything to uh, Sunil Arora, the chief election commissioner, because he's also aided by two election commissioners. And uh, you have chief electoral officers in every state and you have district level uh, election officers. So it is basically, it it functions like a branched out hierarchy where uh, at every level there is somebody who is monitoring the election process. So in that level, we have seen inaction at all of these levels. And finally, Sushovan, one question for you. Considering all the issues that have persisted through this election, can we say with a degree of certainty that they have not been free and fair? The correct uh, way to answer that question would be to say that the free and fair nature of elections has definitely been challenged. There has definitely been an attack on the free and fair nature of uh, Lok Sabha elections in our country. But whether the elections have not been free and fair is is a sort of difficult question to answer. But we can say one thing with certainty is that it has, there has been an attempt to circumvent the free and fair nature of elections to give one party or the other an upper hand. This is all a lot to process, right? And um, we'll be seeing the culmination of all of this, at least in some way, on the 23rd of May when the election results will be announced. Sindhu, but what's become really obvious to me in the last couple of weeks is that this election doesn't seem to be as fair as we think it is. It's not as democratic as we would like it to be. And I don't know whether it's a problem of volume, because India is such a huge country after all, or whether it's a problem of blatant corruption or disregard for the rule of law. Yeah, and you know, I also feel like if you look past the whole mess of the actual electoral process, there's another problem, right? Which is the candidates, like whatever your politics might be, whether you're left, right, center, like way in outer space. Many people believe that politics in India hasn't actually allowed for more or even, dare I say, better politicians to emerge. No one wants to enter the mess that it currently is. And it's the same old legacy family Congress versus what many perceive to be this right-leaning BJP debate and then the local uh, state parties that align themselves in whichever way. And I think it's fair to say that we're all kind of excited for uh, some kind of change, but not very hopeful about the possibility of it occurring. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's interesting because one of the key questions that I've seen repeated time and time and again in this election is if not Modi, then who? Yeah. And every time I ask, you know, be it my family or my friends about this, right? The fact that the BJP party is allowing such uh, right-wing extremism to flourish in this country and isn't doing anything to tamper it. 
says a lot about the values it uh, upholds. Yeah. Right? And their response is, so do you want just the Gandhi family back in power and do you want that nepotism to continue? And so I think there's this crisis of identity in terms of we know there's something we know that there's something wrong with what's happening at the center with the BJP party but we're unable to find an alternative that sits well with us and because of that we're we're happy going with the lesser evil for some people the lesser evil is the BJP for others it's the congress yeah and i think you know something that you pointed out earlier today is also very important which is that we are we are operating in echo chambers right we have our social media echo chambers our mm. uh, liberal communities or whatever it is anyone listening to this podcast is probably like center to like left left of center um but what about the masses what about the people who do um who are like the, the unpaid folks who throng to bjp rallies exactly i mean uh, the daily wage laborer and the farmer like although in congress rallies they're holding those people up as being disappointed with uh, what modi has done in the last 5 years saying that uh, um saying that demonetization and gst have affected the poorest of the poor and these mm. people because obviously demonetization because they weren't able to earn their income when uh, the regular cash supply was unavailable to them yeah and also the fact that the jobs rate is the highest it's been uh, in a long time and that uh, the unemployment rate didn't really decrease over the last 5 years these are issues that you know we hear about but ultimately for people who are in the working class and the lower classes what are they really thinking do they think that they want to stay with the bjp or move you know these are things that we can't really talk about right yeah we don't have the kind of bandwidth to address those issues because we don't know and, and the other thing is that and this is something sushovan talks about the fact that we don't have insight into how whatsapp groups are behaving in this country which is how a lot of people are getting their information and using it to inform their uh, vote yeah right so that's yeah. another place that's a huge black hole that all the pundits are like yeah we don't know what's going on there yeah <laughs> so we can't really say which way the wind is blowing when it comes to this election yeah and and i think also something that i um you know in my very critical um analyses forget to tell my remind myself is that it's a country of more than a billion people it can't be easy being at the helm of its political leadership right, right. and i don't like yeah it's just a tough job man like whatever whoever this job it is Yeah and as someone who's tried to keep up with this new cycle during the election just seeing the number of parties and all the different issues in each state is so you know you can easily get bogged down in it definitely and i i hope that whatever happens is good for india and uh, for all its foreign citizens who live in it <laughs> but yeah i hope so as well so on the 23rd you know i'm interested to see what happens i'm kind of worried that there might be large scale protests in different states depending mm. on what happens partially fomented by certain political parties that are so losers yeah so we'll wait and see Let's wait and see all right trading life is co-hosted by me nikhil venkatesa and sindhuri nandkumar we record our episodes at aura studios in chennai our recording engineer is siddarth das and associate producer is c girinan You can reach out to us at tradinglifepodcast@gmail.com or visit our website tradinglifepodcast.com. 